0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Live Freed or Die Trying. Today is Memorial Day, Day of Remembrance, where we honor those who served and fallen defending our great nation. So let's take a moment to remember our servicemen and women who sacrificed everything for our freedom. Today in their honor, um, we're going to try something new and hopefully this will be a theme moving forward. I'm going to call it Gearhead Monday. So today we're going to discuss some of the basic gear that I use for hiking and rocking. And this is gear that I currently use so it's not a comprehensive review or update or evaluation of gear in general this is gear specific to me so right now I have three distinct setups and it's uh, akin to my days in the military where we would build a kit, and the kit was mission-specific. So, while you were issued a significant amount of gear, you didn't always take all the gear on every mission. You had uh, kits that were built out that were mission-specific. So, I've tried to replicate the same in my gear for whatever tasks I am setting out to do. So. My three basic setups that I employ right now are my everyday rig, and that rig consists of a go-ruck backpack. Uh, it doesn't have to be a GORUCK backpack, it just turns out to be that in this instance. Um, and what is a GORUCK backpack? There is an a organization called Go Ruck, again, military-themed. And in essence, uh, what they do is they have nationwide, might even be international at this point, um, rock events. And in essence, you you have to hike uh, or walk, depending on the particular and specific event, to from point A to point B. You have a specific amount of time. There are tasks along the way, check-ins, and the, the whole point of it is that you rock it. And what rocking is, is essentially it's a backpack filled with weight. Uh, so in my case, I happen to have a Go Rock Backpack, a backpack from the official website. I purchased it off one of my coaches at the CrossFit gym. Uh, so it was a used, but in excellent condition. These are very tough backpacks. Um, They are multi-purpose. You can use them for other things, but they are specifically designed for rucking. Uh, So it's high quality material. Um, The shoulder straps uh, have padding, um, an extra stitching and all the seams to make up and to assist with the the weight distribution. Um, so they're, they're high quality and very tough backpacks. They're not very big. Uh, you know, the one that I have, again, it's specifically designed to carry um, a plate. Um, in this case, I'm carrying a 25 pound plate. So that's my everyday rock. And essentially, what I use that for is my morning rock around town. Uh, Scout and I go for our morning walk and we have a routine. We will walk between three and four miles every morning. And uh, I use this backpack for that that walk around town. Um, This particular one has Molly attachments, uh, which is basically webbing that goes across the face of the backpack and along the shoulder straps. And uh, again, that's sort of a, a nod towards the, the military packs. And you know, molly attachments or molly webbing is designed so that you can, you can add and subtract, add and delete uh, other items to your pack as needed. And again, that, that calls from the military and building out your kit mission specific. Uh, In my case, I take nothing other than the backpack. Um, I have a carabiner attached to one of the molly points on one of the shoulder straps and I clip Scout's leash into there so that I am hands free that you can walk alongside me. Uh, I keep my keys inside as a dedicated loop to secure your keys too Uh, has an internal pocket or a divider um, so that you can slide your weight plate into there and it's not bouncing around and hitting you in your back so that's good it it keeps it in place uh, because as you're walking and rocking things have a tendency of moving and what you don't want to have happen is have a 25 pound plate or weight uh, constantly smashing into your back, lower back, that can be painful, and that'll wear you down over time. But you know, the, the point of the rock is to simulate sort of the load that you'd be under if you were in the military and rocking all your gear. Uh, for me, I enjoy wearing this backpack very snug um, it's comfortable and we've been rocking now for i want to say two months and i don't even feel the weight anymore we've built up uh, enough of uh, endurance and gotten used to this so that um a i wouldn't leave the house without it and b i don't even feel it so that's my everyday my everyday gear. Ruck backpack, 25 pound weight, key attachment, molly webbing, carabiner, and that's it. My outfit, the clothing that I wear, I pretty much wear the same thing every day. I'll start at the bottom, work my way up. I have Solomon. Trail shoes. I'm wearing the XA Pro 3D. They are a rugged outdoor waterproof lightweight trail shoe. These are fantastic. I actually got them to do obstacle course races, uh, Spartan races, and the like, and they have served me well. I have worn them in the winter. I wear them in their all season Um, i've used it on an obstacle race at a ski slope that was active in the middle of the winter and they were phenomenal in addition to providing warmth by being waterproof uh, they had excellent traction on the slope in i want to say knee deep and sometimes thigh deep snow icy conditions. Uh, They have really thick nubs on the bottom that have excellent gripping power. Uh, They have a reinforced toe, uh, excellent cushion in the heel. I I wouldn't consider these everyday running shoes. Um, They're not equivalent or, or lightweight like Nike's Reeboks. Asics or any of the high-end running shoes if you're running on pavement if you're running you know marathons these are not the shoes these are legit um, trail shoes Um, I happen to wear them every day uh, just because I want my feet to get used to them and uh, to remain consistent I'm not actually running or out rucking during the week. Uh, so these shoes are fantastic. They, they don't have laces. They have like a proprietary um, quick draw, which is basically uh, the laces don't have ends to pull and tie. They're, they're it's a loop and it has sort of a, a trigger, if you will, that you loop your finger into and you you pull it. It's like a drawstring and it, it, it really cinches and holds the shoe tight to whatever degree you want. So it, you have the ability to make it as tight as you want. And then that section, the trigger component has a, a special pocket that you can recessed it in when you're actually running so you don't have anything bouncing up and down the, the shoes almost look like they have no laces it looks almost like slip-ons but they're phenomenal and depending on again what I'm doing if I'm just rocking around the neighborhood I don't make the shoes overly tight these a little bit looser because uh, this is more of a leisurely fast-paced scroll if I'm on the trail I'll make them tighter because if I get into mud or muck that's sucking, I don't want it ripping my shoe off. Uh, So I'll I'll make it a bit tighter. Next, depending on the weather, I may wear, I always wear uh, wicking socks, but depending on the weather and the application, either it'll be an anklet if it's warm and I'm staying local, or it'll be, you know, a calf height uh, wicking sock. You want something comfortable, again, and uh, something that allows your foot to breathe. I can tell you that, uh, you know, if you just take generic socks and you're putting down miles or you're hitting the trail, it can make, it can make your hike, your rock, your trail, very uncomfortable if uh your feet are not comfortable all right that's that's what's going to get you through your hike uh next i wear trail pants if i'm around the the neighborhood i wear reebok um lightweight trail pants Uh, they don't have any pockets i think it's made out of a nylon they're sort of windproof to a certain extent they're very lightweight um they offer excellent protection against the wind and light rain. Uh, I've worn it in in all weather, from sleet, to rain, to snow, and uh, it's not insulated. I wouldn't wear it in the very cold and expect to remain warm, but it's a very versatile all around, great everyday trail. Then on top of that, I will wear a short sleeve shirt, and depending on the weather and what's going on outside, I have a lightweight Under Armour run shirt. It's breathable, it's lightweight. Um, I'm wearing that right now, actually. It's probably 50 degrees outside, it's overcast, it's wet, um, and it's, it provides enough insulation for me that I am not cold. Uh, at the same time, it has breathability, so I'm not sweating or overheating. Um, on my head, I wear a baseball hat. Pretty much I uh, have three different baseball hats that I wear. They're all the same, but I do, I do think that head covering is important. Uh, if it's sunny, it keeps the sun out of your eyes. It also keeps the sweat out of your face. um, And you lose a significant amount of heat out of your head and extremities. So it's one way to keep that contained is to wear a cap cover. So I always wear a baseball hat or some sort of head covering. If it's sunny, I'll take sunglasses. Um, But that's that's my EDC, it's my everyday. Oh, one other thing. When we're talking about EDC, Everyday Carry, I never leave home without my SOG Flash 2 knife. So I, I always have a knife on me, you never know um, if or when you may need it. Uh, that is always with me, it's always on me, no matter what. And that about rounds out my everyday uh, gear. Uh, my, Next level of gear. All right, gets split into two different setups. All right, and that again is mission specific, task specific. If we're going out as a family, uh, Marion and I are going out with the dogs, and we're doing a day hike or whatnot, I have a a five eleven tactical bag that is phenomenal. It's the Havoc 30 backpack. This bag is just wonderful. It's actually the bag that I use every day for work. Um, It has a very large capacity. Um, Inside, it has space for laptops, iPads. Uh, It has a sunglass pouch on the exterior. It has Molly attachments. You can put water bottles in there. It has an external pouch for sneakers if you want to use it as a gym bag and don't want to stink up your bag it is just an all-around incredibly versatile bag that's my everyday um, my everyday workhorse bag right where I if I need it for work or I'm going out on the trail as a family with multiple people um, I can I can get a significant amount of items in there and comfortably, and methodically store it and uh, have easy access to the important things that I need without having to take the bag off. Morning, morning. So I can, and and it has, it's an incredibly adaptable bag too. Uh, It has a a detachable waist harness um, or belt, a cummerbund, all right. And the Cumberbund has its own pouches. So if you, you needed to, like, easy access, you can put your keys in there. You can put, um, you know, running goo. Uh, for those of you who run or get out there, it's, it's like um, power gel. Uh, it, it also has Molly attachments. You can attach other things to it. Uh, I don't think you're forced in there without it protruding, but. Uh, you can definitely put a, a significant amount of small items, gum, uh, you can put a small battery charger, phone charger in there, uh, wires, uh, like I said, cheese, uh, it, it's a nice addition to have to that pack and if you're using it for something other than hiking, you can detach the cumberbund so you don't need to have that hanging, hanging off the bag. Uh, I've stuffed camping chairs in there, two Helinox camping chairs in there. Uh, it can contain a bunch of water bottles. They have pouches on either side, right and left, independent, isolated from the bag where you can put like Nalgene size, uh, hard plastic water bottles, um, or shoes if you want. Uh, it has space inside for uh, a Camelback water bladder, or another company. It doesn't have to be Camelback. Uh, I set that rig up the same as the rock, which is I'll take the carabiners off the rock. I'll put it onto the Molly attachments on the on the bag, and I'll attach Scout's leash to that the same way I do. And that setup, by the way, is universal for all my my rigs right so the carabiner uh, with scouts leash is a quick release easy attach detach from every every one of my my backpacks and I just unclip it and then reclip it to whichever bag I'm using Uh, so the 511 bag can handle two helinox camping chairs internally um, foul weather gear, water, uh, sunglasses, sunscreen. I, I mean, I keep everything there, I have a compass, I have batteries, food. It's a really, really versatile all around good bag, especially if you're, uh, you're doing a day trip and you want to haul, you know, a, a moderate amount of gear, it's perfect my third setup and third rig is when i'm going solo and that rig is a camelback backpack uh it's like an early edition early model um i don't know it's it's got to be several years old i've replaced the water bladder a couple times uh but the backpack itself is i'll have to check the model i don't i don't remember off the top of my head um i love that backpack it's significantly smaller than the than either the GORUCK rucksack or the the 511. The 511 is the largest bag. The GORUCK would probably be the second bag uh, in size. And then the Camelback is the third. However, once again, the design of the Camelback is phenomenal. Good morning hi um getting some neighborly love out on our ruck um yeah so the the camelback is incredibly versatile and and by the way many of these bags have items in them that are specific to them and duplicitous meaning every bag that i have always has um, nourishment in it it always has one or two power bars always and I'll rotate them out know, yeah, they don't sit in there for months on end but they're always in there so I, if I need to grab and go I don't have to first start packing them up they all have some spare change in them they all have lights in them um, I have a tourniquet that i rotate through the bags i have a compass and a signaling mirror that i rotate through the bags that are not unique to any one bag it's one piece of equipment that i take always well they they vacillate between the 511 bag and the camelback bag i don't put them on my ruck bag because i'm only rucking around the neighborhood it's usually an hour, 20 minutes or less. So I don't need that outdoorsy equipment for it. The bladder in the Camelback is a two liter bladder, I believe, um, which is phenomenal. Contains a lot of water. Uh, there's also an external pouch. You can put more water in there. Um, again, like I said, I take um, spare battery chargers when I'm out on the trail. My Camelback. I take at least one light. I take a Black Diamond headlamp. Uh, Sometimes I'll attach an external bike light uh, to the to one of the Molly attachments on the uh, on the rig. I okay okay okay. Um, I have a whistle, uh, a location whistle that, that is dedicated to the Camelback backpack. Um, I have some power cord dedicated to the Camelback backpack because that's, that's, again, that's my solo rig that I take when I'm going on my own, so there are, there are dedicated tools and equipment to that bag, uh, I always have pens and a small pad in, in all my rigs, uh, always good to have that. I, um, what else do I have? Uh, a multi-tool, I have a Leatherman that rotates throughout through the bags, so that'll, that'll bounce back and forth between the 511 bag and the Camelback bag. Those are when we're going out on the trail. So I always have Leatherman. I always have my Sog Flash 2 foldable knife. Um, those are essential tools. Uh, they have come in tremendously handy on many occasions. I can tell you, uh, on on a day hike, on what a day hike, on a, on a day rock, um, Scout and I went to a local soccer field, big open field. She likes to run around there, and. Uh, it was canadian goose season and for anybody who doesn't live on the in the northeast of the united states the canadian the canadian geese the canada goose are rather large fowl um, and they seasonally show up uh, in, in large numbers and they're all over the place that they travel in large large packs so we got to the soccer field and we noticed uh, a rather large bird was caught all tangled up in the net the soccer net at the goal and could not get out and it looked like it had been there probably overnight it was exhausted and you know had i not had my folding knife. I wouldn't have been able to get it out. I mean, if I tried to get close, it would flap its wings. And if you know anything about Canada, Canadian geese, their wingspan is pretty big. You know, they can they can be five, six feet. You know, wingtip to wingtip. So imagine getting swatted with one or both of these wings when you're trying to get close, and they're honking and struggling. But you know, thankfully, I had um, I had my knife and I was able to cut away the soccer net from around the goose and free it and it actually flew away. It seemed unharmed. I didn't notice any injuries on it, so it, you never know the circumstance when having a knife or tools can be life saving. If not to you, you know, then perhaps to another, another living creature. Um, so I think, and, and I think that about rounds out, uh, my rigs, uh, the three rigs that I am actively currently using on a, you know, weekly, if not monthly basis. I use the GORUCK every single day. I use, uh, the 5.11 tactical bag. Uh, that's my everyday work bag, uh, as well as a one day trail run with the family. And then my Camelback backpack is my solo bag. Alright, that's it for Gearhead Monday. I hope uh, you found that helpful. And I hope you have a happy and meaningful memorial. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Live Freed or Die. I'm your host, Izzy Freed, and these podcasts are the random musings about everything and nothing of just some random dude. Today's podcast is called, My Talus Tells a Story. Now, if you're an Orthodox Jewish male, then you are familiar with a Tallis a prayer shawl. For most people, if you're an adult male, you start wearing a talus when you pray the morning prayers, chakras, both during the week and on Shabbat and holidays. And you put this talus on, you get this prayer shawl after you get married. There are some who have the custom to wear one at the age of Bar Mitzvah, which is 13. Uh, but I would say the bulk of Orthodox Jewish men don't wear a tallis until after they get married, and it's sort of a symbol, uh, a badge of honor, if you will, signaling and identifying to other members of the quorum and the community that you are married, that you have entered a another stage in life in the evolution and the progression of the Jewish Orthodox Jewish male. Now, recently I was at a Minion, it happened to be it was a backyard Minion because we've been in lockdown due to COVID-19 for about two and a half months. And recently the governor relaxed, relaxed the restrictions and allowed gatherings of up to 10 people and specifically allowed gatherings for religious purposes so because they haven't been able to put into place and implement protocols for safety security and health at our shuls at our synagogues um, and because we're limited in the amount of people that can gather for a minion a quorum uh, we some local people put together a backyard minion now the other day Monday specifically, or was it Sunday? I don't remember. Sunday was Rosh Chodesh. Uh, that's the first of the month. And again, if you're an Orthodox Jewish male, when Rosh Chodesh comes along, your there are additional special tefillot prayers, specifically for the blessing on the new month. So. I was happy to be the 10th man at one of these Backyard Minions, but I had previously done I had prayed already. Uh, so I didn't need to pray again, uh, but they needed a quorum, so I was happy to assist. And while I was there, I bumped into a friend of mine, Adam, and um, on Sunday, for morning prayers, you don't usually read from the Torah, you don't take out the scrolls, uh, but when Any particular day when Rosh Kodesh, the new month, begins, uh, regardless of the day of the week, there will always be a a Torah portion that is read from the Torah scroll. And that's what took place on Sunday. It doesn't normally happen on Sunday. You read from the Torah scrolls on Mondays and Thursdays, uh, just a snippet of the weekly portion. Uh, But because it was Rosh Kodesh, because it was the new month, we had the added prayers and Torah reading. Now, because I came to meet the minion, um, I was honored with being called up to the Torah to make a blessing, a bracha, and have a a section of the reading done while I was at the Torah. And if you're an adult male, when you get called up to the Torah, It is traditional to wear a talus, a prayer shawl. Uh, Since I had previously prayed in the I didn't come with a prayer shawl. I didn't come with my and my phylacteries. I was just there to be a tenth man. Um, And Adam was kind enough to loan me his talus so that I could wear it when I go up to the Torah um, as a sign of respect and make the blessings, the bracha, uh, on the portion being read while I was standing there. Now, prior to handing me his talus, uh, and this is sort of normal human nature. There was nothing like inherently odd about this, but what I found interesting and what I ruminated on afterwards is, you know, as Adam was handing over his talus to me, for me to put on, uh, graciously, I might add, uh, he said, oh, morning he said to me uh, he's like oh, this talus is dirty I, I need to get this cleaned and he was pointing to some random stains on the talus, which again if you're an orthodox Jewish male and you've been wearing a talus for any period of time it is routine it is normal for your talus to get stained it's sort of like Uh, akin to getting a brand new car and getting that first ding the first one's always the painful one because up until that point your car is like new and pristine but you know once you get the first ding the next one doesn't bother you and then you don't even notice it after that and it's like normal wear and tear well the same is same goes for the tallest the only difference is you're not getting it dinged up from bumping into things it's getting dinged up from (laughs) the various activities and interactions you have as an Orthodox Jewish male that are unique to the Orthodox Jewish male uh, while wearing a talis. I.e. Kiddush club, herring stains, fish, all the finger foods that you would eat on a Shabbos morning, um, stains from beverages, be it Alcohol, soda, grape juice, wine, etc., etc. What we'll we'll get more into that. But the point is, when Adam handed me the the talus, you know, it, it was almost um, self-conscious on his part, or seemingly so. Hey. morning. Good morning. Or seemingly so, to preemptively say, "Hey, I'm sorry, I'm giving you a dirty talis. Not that I minded or." even would have seen it, and I think if I was in Adam's shoes, I probably would have done the same thing, um, which is yet another interesting human nature observation, um, and when I took it, I said to him, I go, Adam, don't clean it, your talus tells a story, and it was sort of like a an epiphany in that moment, and it brought me back Sort of to like my, my memory and my history of, of a tallis. Now, I grew up Orthodox Jewish, and for me, a tallis was synonymous with marriage, meaning uh, in, in my family, the custom was not to wear a tallis until you became, until you, you wed. And as an Orthodox Jew, uh, the other sort of stereotype, which is steeped in truth, is that Orthodox Jews try to marry their children off at a very young age, and that was true in my case too. I got married uh, at 21. Uh, you know, looking back now, I I think that that was incredibly young, and um, but we can sort of go into that. That's like a whole other topic that you can probably talk about for hours and hours on end. But I do remember one of the exciting components, besides contemplating marriage, which, you know, at that age, I I can only speak for myself, I have to say, I don't think that I was remotely prepared or understood the challenges and and what went into and the responsibilities of marriage. I, I think... As a as a general concept, you know people were I don't want to say enamored with the concept of marriage. I think that based on how we were raised, or people like me and my family and my friends, neighbors, community, um, I think it was sort of a given, like you were expected to just follow in the footsteps of your parents and your family and your community. And it was sort of a automated response. It wasn't something that really you sat down and thought about independently. It was almost like a collective decision. Okay, you're of marriageable age. It's time for you to start dating to get married as opposed to dating to dip your feet into the pool of relationships with other people and other people of the opposite sex, right? Which I'm 47 now. So looking back, I had zero tools in my toolbox at that time to take on the project of being married. All right. But I'm, I'm getting off on a tangent. The The, the point is, is that despite sort of the robotic automated response to getting married and being married, there was a sense of excitement in several components of being married, one of which was going shopping for Atalis. And I very distinctly remember, um, you know, it's sort of, if I can analogize, it's sort of uh, akin to being an apprentice, um, maybe in medieval times, right, where you are under the tutelage of a teacher who's teaching you uh, the way of a knight and how to be a knight and how to sword fight and how to hold yourself and interact with people, um, and then, and then one day, your teacher comes to you and tells you, "Hey, Izzy." It's time for you to be knighted and before you can be knighted, you have to get fitted for a suit of armor because all knights wear a suit of armor and, and there's an excitement associated with that. Like It's like, oh my gosh, I've made it, I'm becoming a knight, I get a suit of armor. It's shiny, it's beautiful and when people see me in it they're gonna stop and stare and it's exciting and exhilarating and it's gonna boost my ego and make me feel things that i've never felt before i'll feel stronger and braver and more noble and regal so juxtapose that or compare it if you will to atalus atalus had a similar attribute for me remember i was 21 I really had no idea what I was about to get myself into. I didn't know that knights may have to go into battle. I didn't know that knights had jobs, duties, and responsibilities outside of looking a particular way. But at least in the moment, in the moment, I was excited at the prospect of going shopping for a talus. I wanted it to look a certain way. And... Back in the day, if you were Orthodox Jewish and your father-in-law took you shopping for a talis, you know, if you were from a certain community, you didn't just get to go shopping for a talis, you got to go shopping for two talisim, two prayer shops. You got to go for the regular weekday one, the no frills every day and then you got to go for the magnificent Shabbos and holiday tallis. Now you may say to yourself, what's a Shabbos Talus? What's a holiday talus? What's a no-frills talus? Well, you know, for me, you're talking... 25, 26, 27 years ago, the options, while vast, were were different than they are today, in that your weekday talus, your everyday talus, if you will, right, was no frills in that it was just a plain talus. Uh, It was a prayer shawl, uh, typically white, Black stripes, four corners, tzitzes, hanging down, and that was it. Your was Talis, on the other hand, got dressed up. It was also a four-cornered prayer shawl, also white, had black stripes, but in the section that would cover your head, there were all sorts of ornate... attachments that you could have put on your towel. You could have silver thread. You can have silver and black thread. You can actually have a silver mantle with silver pieces, almost like a breastplate, like I I equated it and compared it to knight in shining armor, right? This looked like shining armor. It was silver chainmail if you will, and, and there were all different options. You could get plain silver, you can get embossed silver, you can get um, silver circles, you can get silver squares, you can get silver rectangles. And again, for those of you in the know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And not only, you know, could you get rows and rows of of silver boxes or rectangles the number of rows also had defined status i i distinctly remember that i think regular regular chainmail or regular uh headdressing on the tallest was five or six rows but like if you were
1: really religious
0: you can get seven rows of silver chainmail on your on your head covering of the of the tallest and I didn't know what the significance was I just knew my dad had seven rows I want seven rows too and when my father-in-law at the time asked me you know how many rows do you want I instinctively said seven without even understanding or knowing. I mean, even if you asked me today, I couldn't tell you. I have no idea. I just knew or believed that seven was important or had significance or conveyed a certain status and message that I had no idea what it was. I just knew that I wanted it because somebody else had it and I should have it too, and it must mean something. Right, And then it takes time and they have to customize your TALIS. And in addition to the TALIS, another component where you got to spend an exorbitant amount of time and money was customizing and crafting your TALIS bag, right? The velvet, traditional purple or dark blue uh, velvet sack that you would keep your talis in. And back in the day, 20 some odd years ago, that velvet pouch uh, would have a plastic covering to protect it. So you had your talis folded up sort of like an American flag. You'd put it into this customized velvet uh, sack with a zipper. You'd customize the face of that, put your initials on in Hebrew put some designs on it, put, you know, it's sort of like an arts and crafts project for a kid. And then you put that inside a plastic protective case. Um, and I just remember that whole process was so exciting. It was so, so something to look forward to. And then, you know, after you go to the Judaica store and after you speak to the, proprietor and you plot out and plan out your talus, the silver crown, the bag to carry it in, right? You left there with a little bounce in your step, a little skip as you floated down the sidewalk thinking, oh man, I'm going to be a knight soon. And it was really exciting, really, really exciting. Right, and then after you're married, and you go to shul for the first time, and you put on that talus, you put it on with such fanfare. You're busy fixing it, trying to get it perfectly centered on your body. Now mind you, 21 years old, I was 120 pounds, I was skin and bones. All right, and back in the day, the talus was of a dense material it was heavy wool um, and it's not like today where you can customize your talus with like aftermarket parts and there's freaking uh, you know a million websites and companies that you can customize your talus with like no slip material back in the day 25 years ago You know, when you put a talis on, it would slide off your shoulders. It wouldn't seat itself properly. I was constantly, constantly adjusting. And, you know, for all the excitement in the planning and the waiting to get the talis, when you actually got it and you actually wore it, or I should say me, when I actually got it and wore it, it was was incredibly labor-intensive. I was busy fidgeting with this throughout the whole davening. I spent more time adjusting my talus than I did dominating. All right, but the excitement was still there. I didn't say to myself, oh man, this is is so tedious. I was just like, this is awesome. And I love adjusting my talus, right? Okay, yeah, day one, week one, year one, right? At some point, I had managed to come up with a process where I would fold the sides of my tassels over themselves onto each shoulder, and for whatever reason—and this was the same every single time—I don't know if any of you have a similar experience—but every single time, one shoulder the toss would remain folded and never come undone, and then the other shoulder, in my case, it was my right shoulder. No matter what I did, my right shoulder, talus always came undone, and it would flop. And that would feel awkward and weird. I have a little bit of OCD, so to not have that balance, that equilibrium, was beyond annoying. It was even more annoying than having to fix the talus on both sides, was not having to fix the talus on one side, and only having to fix the talus on the other side. Then I tried to figure out if I could high sit this in front maybe that would help create some balance all all i can say is is that over time that allure that excitement that gusto of getting a talus wearing a talus and feeling important from the talus very quickly waned very quickly slipped away and it was replaced with Other feelings, the toss was heavy. And then you'd sit there on Shamas, and in the winter it was great because it was like wearing a blanket on top of you. So, you know, at 120 pounds in the freezing cold, it was nice to have a big wool shawl, you know, to add a layer of insulation and warmth. But come summertime, you know, as a young Orthodox Jewish male wearing a suit, a button-up shirt, a tie, usually a suit was, was wool too, then you had this heavy talus, and on Shabbos, you had a heavy talus with a heavy head cover, and that's the other thing, as, as beautiful as the mantle on your talus was, it weighed a ton, it was heavy, and in the beginning of course you were like, I'm a knight, this is exciting, I am important, But it's like, yeah, important weighs a ton. And important's going to give you whiplash. It's going to crush your shoulders. You're going to get scoliosis. You know, it was not as glamorous as the mind convinced you it's supposed to be. Right? And I also, I distinctly remember... Keeping the talus clean and keeping it pristine, it was kind of like, again, to analogize it to the knight in shining armor, it was like buffing out your armor, like you wanted your talus to be clean, you wanted your atara, your mantle, to sparkle, you know, I i also remember I, I would adjust my talus as much as possible. Because I liked when the Atara would jingle, jangle. Remember, I said I needed seven rows. I don't even know why I needed seven rows of, of silver chainmail. But I guess I felt in my head seven was a status symbol. And the only way for me to sort of exercise that status was for me to constantly adjust. the head portion of my talus to make that that whole hollus jingle jingle so I would like put it up and put it down and adjust it right and adjust it left and the whole thing would go ching 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 and the more it chinged and the more it shuffled and the more it made sounds you know I, I felt more important than I probably actually was I probably looked and felt like I was the court jester rather than the knight in shining armor but in my head it was the opposite i was like i am jingling my importance but again you know in the beginning you wanted to keep it pristine which is again why you had all these protective coverings to keep it safe and secure and ornate and i remember you know early on if i had to if i went to a kiddish and i was wearing my collars. You know, I would be extra careful. I'd be focusing more on my talus than anything else. I would be trying to make sure that my tits weren't dragging on the floor, right? That people weren't stepping on. Because whoa, wasn't that the worst feeling ever? If you were just like talking to somebody and focusing on, on something and all of a sudden randomly and suddenly somebody stepped on your tits and your talus got yanked backwards. Oh my God, you go from, like, having a casual conversation to flipping around, you know, as if somebody just cursed you out, and, you know, with a look of, like, anguish and anger. Like, how dare you step on my talus and, you know, have it fall to the ground? You realize how holy this is and how important I am? I mean, none of that made sense, you know, looking back at it, but that that was how important the perception was in my mind, uh, you know, of the Thales and sort of the power that I felt it conveyed to me. So as a result, I wanted to do everything in my power to make sure that this very important uh, prayer article was kept as pristine as possible. But again, like I said, over time, like everything in life, the luster starts to fade, the excitement wanes, it's replaced with other things. Uh, distraction creeps in, importance lessens and wanes, right? And and life goes on. And that's sort of where the Taos begins to tell its story. Because over time, what happens is, you have kids, or you're sitting next to somebody with kids, and your life is progressing, and it's Shabbos, and the kids come with their snacks, and their bags of food, and their candies, and their lollipops, right, and their pretzels, and their, their potato sticks, and their juice boxes, and you're sitting there minding your own business and shul and your buddy's kids are animals, but you don't say anything because this is your buddy and you don't want to tick them off. But their kids are are slobs and the food is all over the table and the drink boxes are squirting everywhere. You know, they can't get the straw in. And, and you know, when they finally puncture it, they squeeze the bottle of the box and grape juice is going everywhere or apple juice is going everywhere. and Inevitably, inevitably, it gets on your talus. And the first time that happens is like the first time somebody steps on your titsus and that talus slides off your shoulder. You just want to, like, whip around and slug somebody. You get so angry. Like, how dare you? How dare you touch my armor? How dare you stain me? I am pure. And not only that, that anger is directed not just towards the source, but now that anger is directed towards, like, your body as well. And you're like, in your mind, you're saying to yourself, how do you raise such, such animals, such slobbering kids, like, don't you see what I see? Don't you, don't you have control over your kids? Like?" How do you, how do you let something like this happen? Like you are, <laughs> how do you let something like this happen? You just don't care. And and through your carelessness, my talus is getting dirty because of your kids and your ineptitude. And subliminally and subconsciously, there's, there's like a, a, a shift, something clicks in your mind. And your friend who's been your friend forever, right? All of a sudden, there's like this negative slight in your head because of an accident, a legitimate accident. All right, and maybe, maybe they could have been better at watching their kid, right? Maybe they could have opened the juice box for them. But look, they're distracted too. They had a rough week. You don't know what their life is like, etc. But in that moment, I mean, looking back now, how funny is it? Right that you feel so strongly about something that it, it conjures up these really deep psychological responses that you feel internally. and you know, are there other people out there who would respond verbally? Sure. was I one of them? Nope. right? I'd let it best there. I'd hold it inside. And then if enough things would happen over time, at some point, it could be the stupidest thing. <coughs> and that would be sort of like the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Come. Go away. very protective feelings uh, associated with, with your, your Thomas, or at least I did, right, because of the importance and the significance that sort of life bestowed. Thank you. No. Not at all. or that you bestowed it, right, personally, so (laughs) then you get your first tolistene, right, it's the first one. And I said earlier, it's sort of like the first scratch or thing you get on a brand new car. You're just like obsessing over it. You try to figure out ways to get it out. How can I get it back? You know, and, and no matter how hard you try, you know, one of two things happens. A, you never get the stain out. B, you make it worse by spreading it around, Right. Or see it fades, but it looks it looks worse than if you had just left it. Right? And now the obsession gets multiplied like a thousand times. You're like, I can't believe it. And then every time you put on the talus, automatically your eyes are drawn to that one tiny little spot, you know, where the lollipop connected with your talus and left like a little sticky spot. Like you can have like the most Kavana. You can be like really steeped in prayer on Yom Kippur during Mila, right? And somehow your finger just makes its way to that little spot on your talus where you feel that stickiness. Even though it's like a year later, you're still like obsessing over it. Like, I can't believe it. And it's distracting. And just, like, your mind is so easily turned from whatever it is that you're doing to this. You know this insulting little dot on your talus, and it's, it's so much more than that it's like how dare anybody do this to me and my talus? and you know it becomes so personal right and that's that's the first one and then you get another one you're at a kiddish and somebody had a little too much to drink and they back into you and their chalant plate turns over, and now you get chalent on your back, right? Somebody spilled a little bourbon on the front and now your talus smells, right? And then you don't even realize this, but there's you, remember? You're wearing this talus in the summer, too, and you're wearing it over your head when you're younger. You're just like, you want to wear it in the most traditional way, so when I damage from an ray it's going to be over my head. Well, you know what? In the summer, you sweat. And whether you realize it or not, your talus soaks up that sweat. And over time, you know, you get ring around the collar on your shirt collars. You're going to get ring around the collar on your talus. Your talus is going to get dirty, sweaty, stained, right? And then one day, like, you're folding up your talus and you're doing it backwards. You're like, oh, why is why is the, the talus yellow? It used to be white and crisp now it's yellow. And like, you start to notice all these little things. And in the beginning, they really irk you, Um, you know? And then you start Googling. Well, back in the day, there was no Google, but you're like, oh, what do I do about this? How do I deal with this? How can I get this out? And like, I, I remember as a kid, I think once a year, or once every few years, even my grandmother would like clean the towels but she would clean it by hand, and then she would iron it and starch it. Um, they wouldn't to the cleaners because <laughs> that psychology was there. It's like the cleaners is not gonna give the respect to the tallest that the tallest deserves, and they're not gonna be able to clean it, and it's just gonna be a disaster. So my grandmother cleaned, my father's and my grandfather's tallest, right? And then she would like starch it, and folded over hanger and it, it honestly looked better than when it was new. My grandmother, she rest in peace, she was like the Jane of all trades when it came to like household chores and whatnot, ever proper and distinguished. Um so yeah, but you know, after after some time, after you put down some miles, in life, in marriage, the kids come You've been to shul a million times, right? And you begin to settle down in a million different ways. That how becomes like anything else, right? It's a tool. It's something I do, right? You don't feel like the knight in shining armor anymore. You start feeling more like a regular guy, like oh, just everybody else an automatron, a talus, that once made you feel like a knight, no longer does that. You realize you're not a knight. You're just a regular Joe. And, you know, these stains and spots on your talus, they're not affecting you in a negative way anymore. Now you look at it sort of like wine stains grape juice stands in your Haggadah like every year you look for those things and you're like oh I remember that I remember that that was when we did the Tzachadash bi'achab, right or oh yeah I remember that that's when Aunt Linda knocked over the uh, Eliyahu's coast or oh here's a piece of matzah from two years ago I, I specifically remembered it because I put it in there, and I said to myself, oh, when I open Haggadah next year, I want to see if it's still going to be there, right? Now, your Talas takes on those same, that same, those same properties, right? At some point, morning, at some point, you look at these stains, and you're like, oh, I, I remember that stain, that's the Chulid stain. that's the Kiddush, uh, Kohanorm Kiddush, from Sunkhast Torah, you know, 2019. Oh, that stain, that was, uh, was jackson's wrist right and you start to wear that with pride right because you don't need to be a knight anymore this talus isn't your armor this talus is it's your map it's it's your timeline it's your history and that See arrogance but that assumed arrogance turns to a subdued pride right and and you don't need to take your talents to get clean i'm not saying if it, if it gets legitimately stained or you know sweaty or smelly that you shouldn't get it clean but what i'm saying is the little things don't matter anymore the little stains right they become badges of honor They become historical waypoints on your religious journey through life and time that you can look to and wear with pride. I know I do. And how interesting things change. How fascinating that when you look at your talus, you realize that it really does tell a story. It tells your story. It tells the story of where you've been, where you are, and what you've encountered along the way. And you can look at it and feel that every time you put it on, and your connection between the past and the present comes together when you throw on that towel. And when you put it on, the stories of the past come together and allow you a peaceful sense of calm and allow you to continue to write stories of the future moving forward. So the next time you go to shul and you put on your talis and you look around at everybody else wearing a talis. Understand that every talus tells a story, and every story is unique to the wearer of that talus. I hope you enjoyed. Have a wonderful day.